Sports Professor Rick Harrow, and we are on the record. Every week, this podcast will take you inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports, the top deal-making issues, the top tech issues, and the top social responsibility issues, plus a blockbuster interview with someone who you might not have heard from in the world of sports, but having a profound effect on its impact. Let's get started. Sports Professor Rick Harrow inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports and seen in sports shifts across the pond. Wimbledon, the final week, as well as the Open at St. Andrews and so many more events as well. The bottom line is it is a bigger month than any before internationally. I'll be there for much of the week and month to cover it. For now, deal-making issues 3-1. Three. to one. three. Volkanovski and Adesaya easily defended their titles at UFC 276, retaining their titles at T-Mobile Arena at the Vegas Strip. Volkanovski extended his winning streak to 22 fights with a commanding display against Holloway and taking the belt, having the rematch, and all the talk about it. Holloway's entire face was crimson at the final bell. Volkanovski won every round in all three judges' scorecards, 50 to 45, obviously big for what is becoming a mainstream sport. Two. Zion Williamson agrees to a five-year, $193 million extension. His agent, Austin Brown, says the star forward agreed to a five-year extension with the Pelicans, worth the $193 million. Zion Williamson's lost season to injury and unusual absence from the Pelican during his recovery didn't stop the club from betting big on their long-term future together. Star forward agreed to a five-year, $193 million extension, and the AP said that this will be a big deal, classified as a maximum rookie extension under the NBA's labor agreement. The deal sets the stage for the six foot six, 280-pound high-scoring forward to give an all-star caliber boost to a squad that recently proved it could make the playoffs without him. ESPN first reported the agreement, also citing information provided by Brown, co-director of CAA Sports Basketball Division. We'll have another major agent uh, representative talking about another sport in a couple of minutes, a, a tease, but bear with me. Pelicans have not yet announced the extension under the NBA rules can't be released until next week. But it's a show of faith by the Pelicans. The injury plagued Williamson, who had played a total of 85 games in his first three NBA seasons and missed all last season with a foot injury. One. How about number one? Matchroom Sport talks with CVC, KKR, and Searchlight over a minority stake sale. The sports promotion company that will be invalued after the investment about 600 million pounds and a sale uh, between that and about 700 million. Matchroom Sport in talks with at least three private equity firms about the stake of substantial minority search searchlight promotion company, according to Sky News. CVC Capital Partners, KKR, and Searchlight Capital, all reporting looking to secure a deal with Matchroom. Decision on the preferred bidder purportedly expected in the coming weeks. Matchroom, founded by Barry Hearn, now run by his son, Eddie. The pair reportedly have no plans to relinquish control of the company. Having launched in 1982, Matchroom initially made its mark in snooker and darts before becoming a major player in boxing. Also presence in basketball, fishing, gymnastics, netball, pool, 10-pin bowling, 
and poker. You talk about international events. I'm over in England. That's their home. That's where they got their value. Well, we have another international guest that, frankly, has been a good friend, contributor to the Sport Business Handbook, also one of the original masterminds of IMG Sports. Bob Kane, a 40-year veteran in the golf and tennis world, came to IMG in 1976. In 19, 2003, he was the co-CEO. Mark McCormick passed. But as Bob Kane retired, the company boasted 3,000 people, 61 offices, 30 countries, many here across the pond. Entrepreneur, finance, law, politics, marketing, psychology, hunt a thousand individual clients, a thousand events, and 10,000 hours of programming, and so much more. Been involved with the USGA, women's golf, a whole host of other issues. And as we head here into the British Open and the 150th anniversary at St. Andrews, it is incredibly appropriate that we get an amazing perspective from friend, contributor, and sports executive, Bob Kane. So you started IMG in 76, and at the end of the day, you had created uh, uh, Skaters uh, uh, Stars on Ice with Scott Hamilton, IMG Fashion, uh, the tennis business, uh, the golf business was the model. But you took, obviously with Mark and everybody else, IMG from the world leader into the intergalactic leader. Talk a little bit about that. When I got there in 76, I probably was the 30 or 40th executive um, second or third in tennis so and tennis was uh, tennis was a little half a million dollar business and we decided to try and grow it so um i got there at the right time tennis was just starting to get great and take off and we had an unbelievable run and, and the fun thing for me was golf was already doing great and i got to do tennis and do the fashion and do the img academy and do the skating i got to do all these other things and watch the whole company grow like crazy and be a part of that growth. So, I mean, I'll give you one example. Tennis was a $600,000 business my first year, and 20 years later, it was a $100 million business. So I just got on a rocket ship and held on tight, and Mark and all the guys thought I must be pretty smart, but tennis, uh, tennis was good to me. Well, tennis was good to you, but uh, managerial and entrepreneurialism was also good uh, for you. Uh, when you uh, uh, left IMG or retired, uh, 3,000 people, 61 offices, 30 countries, 100,000 individual clients, 1,000 events, 10,000 hours of programming. That does, doesn't happen overnight. It's no. a plan. And you guys created something that nobody ever has before or since, right? No, I, I think that is right. You know, and it was fun because we were the trailblazers. You know, it was Mark. Mark. Um, you know, McCormick was an interesting guy because he was a visionary. Uh, so he did the 100,000 foot uh, ceiling version pretty well. But he was also a very detailed lawyer on the ground. And he kind of taught the rest of us. And there were about 10 of us that were there from the very early days. And we stuck together, which I think the continuity of personnel, getting to know him, understanding what he wanted, and he let us do what we wanted, uh, was a great combination. So for most of the first, I was there 30 some years, the first 20, 20 some years, that group of 10 stuck together. And I think that was, we were early days of the tennis and the, and this golf business and the global sports marketing business and be able to keep the management team together gave us a huge advantage as we, you know, flew around the world trying to build 
sports business? Well, as you flew around the world building the sports business, it was uh, a group of, uh, of uh, very significant uh, leaders uh, amalgamating businesses that I guess you could argue had never been put together before in this vertically integrated context. Did you ever think it wasn't going to work? Well, I think we thought parts of it weren't going to work, but we, we actually started out as all, we were agents, right? Um, Mark had Arnold and Jack and, and um, Gary Player and then Tiger and Greg Norman. And um, so he was an agent to begin with. I started out and, and luckily in the beginning got, I had Bjorn Borg and Vitas Carolitis and McEnroe and then Agassi Sampras and Courier and Billy Jean and Martina and Chris Everett. So we all start out as agents, but we all seem to have a desire to want, what else can we do? This, this sports business is exploding and we can do more than just be agents. We were selling sponsorship for our clients. Why not sell sponsorship for events? They all wanted to be on TV. Why not look at selling television rights for the Wimbledons and the U.S. Opens and the British Opens around the world? So we actually went step by step for a while. It got faster as we got bigger, but we took our time in the early days, didn't take big risks till later on when we started buying tennis tournaments like the Miami tournament from my friend, Butch Buckle. <laughs> right. It was a step-by-step progression. So uh, later on, we started taking bigger risks. So I th- we thought we knew the business from the agent side better than anybody that we ought to be able to do the, the event side and the television side and turn out we could. And we were early. We were the first movers in most of the world. My comment exactly leading to a question. First movers, a lot of people react to them by saying, let's wait till they fail and pick up the pieces. First movers then say at some point a reaction to them, wow, they're so big, we hate them because they're taking over the industry. Uh, What was the tipping point when the industry began to see you as a threat that they should take seriously, uh, get out of the way or or at least try to deal with you? You know, we did become the 800 pound gorilla in a lot of these areas and um you know and that and then it becomes a little tougher but when we started growing in the 70s and 80s we had good competitors in each sport we had good competitors in each territory in the us and uk and japan and germany but we didn't have anybody that was putting it all together so when it turned out we ended up being the big guys with a lot of little competitors so then you're right, being the 800-pound grill, a lot of people take shots at you. And, you know, I, I think that played well for me because I just generally was a, was a pretty nice guy. You know, I wasn't a cocky guy. And, and so I think a lot of the, the, um, our customers and clients liked dealing with me because they saw maybe a smaller, you know, lower-key guy in a really high-charging industry. And so I was a competitive guy but a much lower key guy than some of the others. So I, I think that played well for me. And it, it certainly, you know, it, we did get criticized for being the big guys an awfully long time, but we kind of liked it. You know, it meant we were doing well. Well, and that led me segue wise to my next question about Bob Kane stylistically. You know, uh, you taught me once, try to be nice. And then 10 minutes later, after I tried and failed, it was like, go back to the way you normally were. It, it's a it's a failed work in progress. It won't even work. It doesn't work for some people. Certainly didn't work for me. Look at the skill set that you have and, and kind of describe what it took to be as successful as you've been, IMG and elsewhere. Uh, entrepreneurialism, finance, is it is it law? Is it knowing 
politics? Is it marketing? It, or is it, it maybe it's psychology? Well, you, I mean, when I was a, an agent for a lot of these stars, um, trying to define those characteristics, you can't go to business school and get what is necessary. Yeah. You could have a psychology master degree. You could have a business degree. You know, having a tennis degree or a golf degree probably is helpful. Um, so that you were a jack of all trades. Um, I think you needed to be a good listener. Um, but you, you have to be yourself to a large degree. And whatever these businesses are, you know that, Rick, better than I do. You can't try and be someone you're not. So, you know, just try to be myself. I do think you need to be really competitive. And I grew up being a competitive tennis player. I became a competitive senior golfer. I was always competitive. And, uh, but that doesn't mean you need to be arrogant or, uh, or, you know, anything but trustworthy. So some of that combination, I, it played well. And I think it, it helped me in a bigger organization. You know, if you were your yeah. own guy, you have to be a little bit of everything. I could play off of some of the other parts of IMG that were doing well and maybe seen as a little more cocky. So I, I think that I played well within the organization internally and externally. Yeah. All right. So that checked off all the boxes. I heard the story. So yeah, marketing. Yeah. Psychiatry, uh, psychiatry, absolutely. Finance. Yeah. Law, entrepreneurialism. <laughs> you, you clearly, you clearly did what it took. Uh, and just a bit of uh, humility index, the uh, sports business handbook, which is being released, but the re-release there it is. Uh, Bob wrote uh, what I think, and I'll say this to everybody, one of the best chapters in there. It's an, uh, and I, it's an honor not only to you and IMG, but obviously to Mark McCormick as well. And we all understand that. But one of the things that you said in there, and we'll refer to a couple of other themes, you said don't wait for anybody. Don't wait for anyone. That was one of your one of your terms. And and part of what I guess that means is, you know, define your vision, get out there, figure out what it is, and have the moxie to to deal with it. So you leave IMG. And talk about the transition or work with the USGA, which hits home now, given the major season we're in. Yeah, I, you know, I spent 31 years at IMG, which uh, is way longer uh, than I ever thought I'd spend in one place. So that was a full career. And, and Mark passed away. I became co-CEO. Um, and then, you know, the family and the uh, trustees wanted to add a fiduciary responsibility, sold it to a private equity firm. And after 30 some years, I felt that was enough. I got, I, I made, um, I had a good friend, Randy Lerner, on the Cleveland Browns. He talked me into being, uh, help him buy Aston Villa in the English Premier League and then uh, become vice chair briefly for the Browns. So I helped him do that. And, um, and then I actually went to CAA after my, well, after my non compete, the president of CAA which was the biggest Hollywood agency wanted to get into the sports business. And he liked our model of doing more than just clients. And um, so I actually worked with him a lot before and just became friends. So he asked me to come and help them in the design and architecture of their sports business, which has turned out pretty well. I did that for a couple of years. USGA came and said, would you consider going? And by then I'm a golfer, right? I'm a scratch yeah. golfer and playing senior amateur tournaments. And they asked me if I would could um, interview to be on the executive committee. And, you know, and I knew all these governing bodies pretty well, having represented most of them in golf and tennis. And, and you know, we were hard-charging guys. They were much more blue blazer, you know, good, right. nice guys. So, But I thought after 30-some years, I'd been given such a blessing to have such a career in sports, I should give back in my 
later passion was golf. I'd, I'd done my tennis thing. So um, I thought, you know what, I, I should do that. And I'm really glad I did. I spent four years on the executive committee. And I think I helped a lot in terms of the business side and how they should, you know, because of my sponsorship, television and event background. Also, the way they deal with the athletes. I think they were a little bit afraid to deal with the athletes. Yeah. And so I think my expertise did help. And I, I had a wonderful time, met wonderful friends who were all wildly passionate about the sport of golf, varying degrees of expertise um, and knowledge. But um, it was a great chapter for me. And I felt like I really did give back, which was fun to do. Well, but you had the expertise, not only, yeah, give back, but the, the vision has taken it. Uh, to a next step where uh, a Mike Wan can take seamlessly to the next step after that. Uh, The championships, we have a women's open, a men's open. We have a youth uh, golf that's being developed uh, like nobody's business. Uh, The big issue to me or to a lot of people listening is the whole notion of governance. You have four majors run by four different organizations uh, the simple naive question would be, do you all get along? But can you op- can can the the majors world and then everybody else? We'll talk about the Saudi tour later. But yeah. the majors world, can they operate the way it's currently configured? And if not, how do you change it? Well, you know, I think forget the Saudis for a second. The four Grand Slams are independent, actually both in golf and tennis. And then the men's tour and the women's tour are two independent tours. I think golf has done a great job. Uh, and then you have the European tour as well as the U.S. tour in golf, a bit of an Asian tour as well. But the two primary tours were the U.S. and European and men's. And, and so they, I think they meet regularly, those different elements. And I think they get along overall pretty well. The RNA and the USGA combine to make the rules of the game and the handicapping of the game. So... They have to get along because yeah. they've agreed that for the best interest of the global sport of golf, they should get along. But I, I do think they do a pretty good job. They're much less feisty than I watched the tennis world do it with the four grand slams and the, you know, the men's and women's governing body. Um, I think golf has done that pretty effectively and built two. And we had a lot to do with the building of the, uh, of the European tour, which is now the global tour, if you will, outside the U.S. So I think they've done a pretty great job with it overall. Uh, and they all get along and they think about what's best for the game. I'd give pretty hard mark, especially for governing bodies, which tend to have turnover and can be a little dysfunctional. I'd say golf has done a really good job. And you focus a lot in the chapter, and I know in your life, in something you call the global mindset, thinking globally and yeah. everything you do had been global. I guess that's one of the successes of the golf business. They've been able to tap into and bring all of the international tours into some level of cooperation with each other, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Now, I'll give you, you mentioned Mike Wan, who now is leading USGA, but we represented at IMG the LPGA forever for their global television rights. And I remember having very serious discussions with our guys who were on the LPGA, uh, you know, it was their client, about you should model the LPGA. This was early on. Sounds pretty good now, right? But yeah. you got you ought to model the LPGA on the WTA. That's the Women's right. Tennis Association, there was one tour globally. Billy Jean, Chris Everett, Martin, they all started in the U.S. And then all of a sudden, these Europeans and, and Asians and Australians started getting better and better. 
And there's one great global women's tour that's quite organized and moves around the world. And if you look at what, and Mike, it was already started, Mike came on and really ran this hard and fast is that's what the LPGA, it was a U.S. tour when you and I didn't have that. Right. And now it is a global tour. And there's one real global tour in women's golf. And there's a wonderful model. And now look at the stars. Now it's funny in men's tennis and in women's golf, we're trying to find a few Americans to still be good, you know? Yeah. But women, so women's golf really did a great job globally. The U.S. men's tour and the and the European tour became more, the European tour became more of a global tour because the U.S. tour was so far along, and they cooperate. So, both have become wonderful global sports. When I started in tennis at IMG, tennis was more global. Golf really was the U.S. and Japan with a, a struggling little European tour, and you know now are both wildly successful global uh, sports. Um, so anyway. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And so the, the other disruptive thing I want to talk to you about is uh, is something that uh, we wouldn't have predicted 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, the whole world of gambling post-2017 yeah. and the Supreme Court ruling. Now, you know, every state in the union, except probably Utah and my own here state of Florida after the latest uh, ruling, you don't allow mobile, but everybody understands what it's like to place prop bets in golf. We used to do it on the green where we would uh, – be there as part of a gallery and we change exchange dollar bills for who got closest to the hole. And now they do that too, but now they do it legally and you put a B in front of it. It's called a billion. So yeah. give us a snapshot of where it's going. Well, it, it is going globally. Um, and a lot of the world was ahead of the U S on that. Every, you know, you and I, when, while we're still alive, every state in the country will have uh, sports betting. If they don't, you know, I think there's a few that don't now, um, my son, who was the president of the Dodgers, business side of the Dodgers, who just moved to Fanatics, they've taken a huge aggressive step in the global uh, sports betting world. It's just here to stay. It's going to get bigger and bigger. It's always been, you know, kind of quietly big in the Vegas and, and your own bookies and stuff. So <laughs> it's just now out in the open um, and it's just going to keep going. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, they're sponsoring things. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it is monitored and if there are any uh, real restrictions five, ten years from now. Uh, you know, we'll see. I don't, it's a little bit, I'm a little bit past that, but I see what's happening and it's going to happen everywhere. Do you remember some of the discussions a few years ago when the leagues were dead set against it until they realized they couldn't stop the train? Now they're all for it. And their yeah. big argument was, we need to protect the integrity of the sport, which we all understand. But we haven't seen a whole lot of widespread Black Sox scandals in any sport, have we? No, you're, you're right. In fact, a lot of the, the leagues and the teams are, you know, the owners of the team are now owners of these, yeah. you know, of the uh, DraftKings and the uh, and some of the other ones. So they have embraced it. I think they saw it as inevitable and they were against it for a long, and, you know, they're still worried about the players betting, but it doesn't stop them from owning a piece of the of the gambling site. So, yeah, it is here to stay. And it, it, you and I both know it came fast. It went yeah. from being frowned upon, you know, and a, a couple of commissioners ago saying we'll never have gambling in our sport to fully embraced. And, you know, I, some things, hey, the Internet changed a lot of things pretty quickly, too, didn't it? Well, yeah, but here's my problem, and here's my rant. I am tired of 32-year-olds who are now running the gambling businesses, and they're trying to tell us what to do. 
All right. They have a lot more money and they're trying to tell us what to do. Don't you feel yeah. that way, too? Well, I think between the Internet world and the gambling world. <laughs> yeah. We're not just gray hair. We're like dinosaurs. Right? Out to pasture. Out, well, I'm going to talk to you in a minute about your son, but that comes last, believe me. So one more comment about media. Uh, media today, and you talk about, quote, it's a different world, and you refer to it in the book. It's prophetic. The media today is, is, is a, a different story. I was at USFL in Birmingham this week, and Daryl Johnston, who now runs the league for Fox, basically is I don't care if I have any fans here because this is a television studio and now we believe it and we understand it. Uh, Give me your overall take of where you think media is today, new media, old media, streaming media, and where it's going. Well, you know, we, I'll give you, I gotta give you a little chronology. When I started IMG, there were three television networks in America and most countries had one. The really, you know, the really go get them countries had two, right? And most of them were government owned. So we started selling international television rights. We were selling to governments and we had two or three choices and sports was Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon on TV. So then we go through this wild period, you know, ESPN, nobody will watch 24 seven sports and then ESPN two, then ESPN news and then golf chat. No one will watch golf 24 seven. So even us leaders in the sports didn't even think that would happen. So, that was pretty cutting edge but now you know there's a network for everything and maybe espn is just an old that's how old i am now is espn was cutting edge it may be a dinosaur yeah, that's right so maybe all getting it through this thing that we're doing right now and um and it may just all be direct consumer but you know i hope i'm still around to see it but it, cable might even be pretty ancient who uh, who pays for the media in the future, especially the streaming stuff? How do we monetize? Advertisers continue to see the value because there's a unique we, way to measure it. I think we keep paying, and advertisers keep paying. They yeah. just, you know, they just. I think it's still the same people paying. It's just different forms. It may be lots more nickels and dimes and dollars rather than, you know, your hundred and fifty a month for all your cable and sports networks. But, you know, I'm I'm the last guy to ask. I, I'm. I had my run, and now I just listen when uh, when I have dinner with my son. I don't talk about it too much. Well, that that's a uh, that's you know, and, and probably that's the right answer given his uh, uh, rapid rise in the industry. But that's a that's a that's another matter. So yeah. let me ask you this: relative to what we see in the media these days, this whole Saudi-backed process, we yeah. saw it before with Greg and Fox. We see it now. It seems to be a little more real today. What's your take yeah. broadly? You know, here as a fan, I'm a little, I'm disappointed because I think golf is a unique sport in the world of professional sports. What other sport, especially the U.S. tour, is so organized and gives so much money back to charity? It is designed as a nonprofit. And every week I've been lucky enough to be on a couple of boards of different PGA tournaments. And they give back millions and millions of dollars to local communities. And there's no sport in the world that's ever set up that way it's wildly unique and amazing so you know i i I feel bad to see it being attacked but you know life life moves on and progress is progress and and courts of law don't look at companies that are give back more than other companies to charity so as far as this current thing it's the first big threat we had lots of these things in tennis. People were constantly thinking about blowing up the tour and starting yeah. new tours. 
golf's been pretty staid and conservative. So this is a big thing for them. Um, you know, I, I was very involved in, in a potential antitrust lawsuit when we were managing athletes and running events in tennis world. Um, the tour has the ability and the right to set rules and guidelines. When it comes to court battles, courts start defining what is a reasonable set of rules for your tour. And that is a slippery, expensive slope. And I think they feel like their rules are reasonable. And I think Greg and, and the LIV think they're unreasonable. Big bloody fight probably going to happen. And, and, we'll see, and we'll see what happens. But there's no slam dunk on either of this. And if I had to be a, a fortune teller, <clears throat> this will go for a while, maybe a year or two years. Or, and then somebody will sit in a room and they'll carve out some weeks and, and they'll do some sort of settlement. Because antitrust lawsuits, you know, the, the results can really be ugly for everybody. Well, it, it, it's nothing wrong with paying lawyers. A lot of money. That, that, that's the, that's the a mantra. lot of money. I remember yeah, a lot of money. we paid in ours, and it was a little league compared to this one. So. A lot of money. One more big, substantive, slippery slope kind of question. Put your agent hat on or your owner team hat yeah. when you were with the Browns for those seven seconds. Whole NIL process, genie back in the bottle, toothpaste in the tube. I've heard so many metaphors about how it's too late to regulate. Where does the whole NIL issue go? Oh, man, that, that um, you know, I, I feel, I think 18 to 22-year-olds that are unbelievable and drawing big crowds and big television rights are adults and should get paid. And the rest of the world, that's what happens. America had this this thing called education, which is really nice, for, <laughs> especially for the rest of us that aren't, you know, right. athletes and making millions off their athletic prowess. Um, but everywhere else in the world, 18 to 22 year olds are making money. They're in the minor leagues or the major leagues. So, you know, I think something had to give on that. As a fan, I hate to see maybe college sports change forever. Um, but the NIL thing's out of the bag. So um, once it's out, I don't see it going back in. And, and um, I don't think the NCAA is going to have much control over this. It, it, I, I could see the super conferences getting together and having what is quasi semi-professional leagues. And they're kind of minor leagues anyway, especially in football. Basketball has, uh, you know, is to some extent. Uh, but I, I don't think it's going to go backwards. I think it's going to keep changing, and, and it's evolving now, and I don't think – it's certainly not settled. Um, but, you know, I think they dodged a bullet with the NIL, but I think you're going to pay these kids ultimately and the Super Leagues. You know, the SEC's yeah. NFL junior anyway. So yeah. they're all going to yeah. end up uh, doing something. And, and the South, they're, you know, all the, they're going to root for their teams just like they do now. So. Yeah. And you couple the NIL with the transfer portal and you really got one big professional free agent organization and, yeah. you know, TBD as far as the results are concerned. All right. Two personal I, would, I would like your take a little bit. You you yeah. agree or disagree with where I'm heading? Toothpaste out of the genie, out of the bottle, hey, out of the barn, out of the whatever. Yeah. The whole metaphor. I totally agree. And especially with the transfer portal, Bob, because yeah. now if I am a golfer and, and I guess the advantage for the athlete is. The golfers can talk like the water polo players can talk like the soccer players that I want to get my friends together and we want to make the Oklahoma State 
softball team or make the Arkansas basketball team. And, you know, if you accept today's premises and the legal foundation upon which the country's built, nothing wrong with that. But boy, you get to guys who are either one and done or teams who just lost their athletes or the rhetoric that Jimbo Fisher tries to deploy. Uh, you know, it's an entirely different world. So yeah. I yeah. think we're I think we're totally on the same page. Are we too old to do about uh, anything about it? Absolutely not, because we're both no. hanging in. But I have two questions for you, which are let important. Me, let me hold those two questions. So I was chairman of the Amateur Status Committee for the USGA. Okay. The perfect professional guy, right? Yeah, right, right. What I, um, what we came to and changed the rule is that these kids online are making money. They can make endorsement money. The only thing they couldn't do is, is take prize money. That's the only differentiation between a professional and amateur golfer. And the NCAA has their own set of rules. But I thought we were heading, you know, so I thought we yeah. head off at the pass. If you play for prize money, if you're a, you're a pro. If you don't play for prize money, you're an amateur. And I don't care what you make online. I don't care if, if Titleist pays you money or Ping pays you money. Um, we made it very clear and very simple. And I think something like that's going to happen with the NCAA. Well, it's certainly simple. I think what it takes probably is that template with guys that are ADs that matter in the yeah. industry, SEC ADs, for example, and it gets done. But when the president of the NCAA, final pontificating comment, says, I we're going to solve all your problems. It's two Decembers ago. College athletes should be paid and work out of the details and check with us July 1, 2021. Oh, it didn't happen. Well, it's wild, wild west. Good luck. <laughs> Go at it. Yeah. They could have preempted all this by being yeah. proactive and, you know, so they we didn't. are where they are. Yeah. All right. Here's question one. How does it feel when people come up to you and say, aren't you Tucker Kane's dad? <laughs> you know, it, it couldn't, uh, it couldn't, I couldn't be more proud and couldn't be happier. It did happen pretty fast, actually. <laughs> yeah. We, you have no problem with Dodger tickets. Now you have no problem with Fanatics merchandise. For those of you who don't know, he's, he is uh, quickly running up the corporate sports business ladder quicker than we ever did. Well, he, he uh, you know, he had great owners at the Dodgers that allowed yeah. him to build his own little internal private equity world. Yeah. In sports technology, which made him a cutting edge guy, which he got to know Michael Rubin and Michael thought he knew what he was talking about. And now, um, you know, he uh, I think he's in a wonderful, wonderful spot at Fanatics. So, yeah, hey, good for him. He uh, yeah, he doesn't need any allowance from his dad. I'll tell you that. As you can tell, Bob Kane is one of a kind. And as we spend our month in the international world, there's nobody better than Bob Kane. How about the Sports Tech Minute? NBA invests in Zigazoo as their video-based social media app for kids looking to expand into Web3. Their latest investors include uh, Focus on Children Under 12. Liberty City Ventures led a $17 million Series A round that values a company at around $100 million. Several sports-centric groups joined the investment, including Causeway Media Partners, Dapper Labs, One Football, and Amoka Brand. Serena Williams and the late, house, uh, 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 late night host uh, Jimmy Kimmel are also among executives. It's a TikTok-style video app that includes activities for children and has noted interest in exploring new technologies such as Web3. LeBron James appeared on the platform through its celebrity reading series. That's your sports tech minute. How about gambling? Well, it's prolific. It's happening in every state. Kansas, all systems go. 
just weeks away. The sports betting bill signed in mid-May by Governor Laura Kelly went into effect on July 1. She says a launch in time for week one of the NFL se- season is, is the goal. She made the comment at the State House on June 20 during a special bill signing ceremony attended by lawmakers and casino industry representatives. Kelly refuted the notion, however, that the state was trying to poach the Kansas City Chiefs with the bill. According to Fox for Kansas City, Kelly told those in attendance at the state host ceremony, never approach the Chiefs, nor does anybody in my administration. So no, I'm not doing that. And quite honestly, when you think about the amount of money the bill would generate and put into the fund, it would not come close to being what you'd need to generate a major league franchise. But approval in Kansas continues a nationwide movement that has gained further steam in 2022 as state legislatures in all regions of the country race to try to keep sports betters and tax revenues they generate within their own borders. That's certainly been the case in Kansas, which has seen residents travel to neighboring Colorado or nearby Iowa, two states where sports betting is legal to wager on high-profile events like the Super Bowl and March Madness. Finally, the Good Sports Five. Well, Paul Casey joins, joins Live Golf. He'll debut at the New Jersey event. The 44-year-old Casey, ranked number 26 in the world. It adds to the credibility of the event, but also talking about the significant dollars generated for charity and for golf. Kumar Rocker went from a top 10 pick in 2021 to MLB's biggest mysteries in 2022. A member of the Vanderbilt staff, a no-hitter in the NCAA Super Regionals, two years ago, 19 strikeouts. The performance in the Frontier League, he's providing teams with some peace of mind about his current well-being, seeing what's happening long-term. Sports Illustrated partners with Muhammad Ali's Enterprises for a new NFT drop with One Of and eBay. No greater athlete in the world whose legacy is intertwined with Sports Illustrated than Muhammad Ali, said Michael Sherman, VP Media at the Authentic Brands Group owner of the Sports Illustrated brand. UFC and Latin global sub- superstar Anuel AA have come together in a partnership. Under this expanded partnership, becoming an official marketing partner of the UFC, opening up a variety of opportunities to integrate its trademark branding within key assets. And then finally, we've talked about matchroom, matchroom sports, talked about raising money across the pond, football, but also basketball, fishing, netball, 10-pin bowling, pool, poker, but also more money for these kinds of events means more money for the athletes, the events, and also philanthropy down the road. We'd like to thank Bob Kane for giving us invaluable perspective at the time most needed as we go international for the next few weeks. We'd like to thank Nick Nielsen for helping to put the show together. We'd like to thank you all for watching and listening. And join us next week as we continue to come to you from across the pond, the week of the British, called now the Open Championship. More events as it relates to the $1.3 trillion business of sports. I'm the sports professor, Rick Haro. Speak with you soon.